The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis on the uh, Restoration Radio Network. Uh, I'm your host, Nicholas Wansbutter. Uh, for tonight and carrying forward, I'm actually going to be taking over hosting duties from Justin Soder. And I have uh, the privilege uh, of being joined by our uh, usual guest for this show, uh, His Lordship Bishop Daniel Dolan, pastor of St. Gertrude the Great uh, Church in Westchester, Ohio, and Father Anthony Chicata, assistant pastor at uh, the same church. So, uh, my lord and father, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pl- pleasure to be here. Thank you. And, uh, my lord, uh, I know you always like to start a show with a prayer, so I- I'd invite you to lead us in that, and then uh, we can carry on. Our, our show this evening is a continuation of last month, that is to say a further uh, consideration of sports, particularly the Olympic sports and the concept again of sports as a religion, maybe a little bit more developed. Uh, this show is being recorded on the first Saturday of March, which is the feast day as well of the patron saint of Wales, St. David. And I want to say a prayer in his honor. It seems especially fitting for two reasons. St. David has the nickname of the water man because he and his monks never drank beer, which was the common drink of people in Wales of his era. And of course, as we well know, beer is a necessary adjunct to many, if not all, sporting events before, during, and after. The second reason is that um, one of his pagan neighbors in order to disturb uh, the monks of St. David, who were very strict and very recollected, at some point actually arranged for his slaves, his female slaves, to cavort about to play games within the sight of the monks. And uh, they, of course, resisted the temptation, but it's interesting to note that there's always that idea, that connotation, as maybe will develop today, um, of the, the playing of games and offense against modesty. In any, word, in any case, let's say a prayer in honor of St. David. O God, the light of the faithful and shepherd of souls, who did set blessed David to be a bishop in thy church, that he might feed thy sheep by his word and guide them by his example. Grant us, we beseech thee, to keep the faith which he taught and to follow in his footsteps. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. St. David, patron of Wales, pray, pray for, for us. Pray for us. Right. Thank you for that, Lord. As uh, you mentioned, we're revisiting sports uh, today and uh, continues to be a timely topic. The Winter Olympics just wrapped up uh, about a week ago. And um, what I'd like to start off with is if we could perhaps uh, expand a bit on some of the things that uh, you were discussing about uh, the dangers uh, of sport. I, I know we got a number of questions from listeners. Um, some uh, uh, people perhaps concerned that uh, the, the clergy is saying that sports uh, is just bad in general, or it's a sin per se to uh, take part in sports. So I wonder if you could uh, talk about that a little bit. Well, thank you, uh, Nicholas. I, I, I welcome the opportunity to make an important distinction, which I think emerged a little bit in our first show. That is to say that uh, sports can be viewed and should be in a Christian context as play, recreation, exercise, fun. And uh, that's how the church has always viewed and indeed tolerated sports, as opposed to sports as uh, what the Greeks and St. Paul knew as agonia, strife or conflict unto the death, and conflict or strife, as St. Paul says, for a perishable crown. 
that idea of sports as conflict um, and unto the death almost, or very close in ca- cases, is uh, very much um, current today. And then that's also connected with the idea of sports as a religion unto itself and indeed a replacement for religion. So that's one distinction I would like to make. And then the other distinction would be uh, more about um, oh the nature of um, of sports again versus versus that of the versus that of the Olympics. Father, what, what do you think about that distinction? Well, it, it was the one that uh, emerged last time. The idea that uh, uh, some of the things in the discussion that came out, the negative uh, side of uh, competitive sports, were tied in very closely with the idea that the the struggle and uh, agonia, uh, which we talked about last time, and uh, that is uh, really where one sees the. Uh, uh, the moral problem that uh, sports now have taken on a um, uh, a different cast, sort of a, a light of uh, their own, where they're not done as much for uh, uh, recreation, but they become professionalized and have become a, uh, a real source of of, uh, uh, of strife. If you take something like a professional football which uh, we talked about uh, last time, that this has uh, an enormous amount of uh, strife written into it. It's it's now uh, the nature of the game, if you look at pro football. If you look at college football, it went uh, perhaps from something in the uh, Ivy League of being uh, recreational to something where it actually is, uh, uh, it produces strife and, it produces injury. The same thing, uh, certainly at the high school level, if uh, you read about uh, sports teams in high school, uh, how the students are motivated, what they're expected to do. Again, you have that strife and, and that injury, and that even goes uh, lower down into grade school. So if you take one example like that, um, uh, football in the United States, you see that, that element of strife where the fun aspect of um, uh, 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 sport, if played in moderation, is something that's lost, and it's turned into something that is, um, in fact, strife, struggle, and indeed, in the case of football, danger. If you you know multiply that, uh, if you look at, uh, for instance, basketball. And you look at what that has has morphed into at the uh, professional level and at the college uh, level in the United States and to a certain extent at the high school level. And with with so many of these sports, especially the competitive team sports uh, across the board. So that's... well, we, we, uh, that would be like a, a classic example would be the competitive team sports, which I would distinguish from uh, uh, sports which or, or forms of recreation that are, um, you know, of, uh, of, of their essence don't have that competitive team type of struggle. You know, like like tennis or, or badminton for some uh, for some reason. Good. If I could just jump in here, Father, I, I, as you're speaking, I'm remembering that you made a very interesting, insightful comment. I thought not that you have any uninsightful comments, but <laughs> last time in the show was about how you you noticed or one could notice at these athletic events that nobody's smiling, nobody's having a good time. It's all gritted teeth and serious looks. Uh, Unto anger and uh, pride, and you know, calling calling the the, the referee uh, different names. Um, it's sort of as though every sporting event were the defense of England against the German invasion, and as you know, and somebody's got to say blood, toil, tears, and sweat. But that's not the point. That is the point of agonia, very much so. That's the old pagan idea. Um, I think here. It's and this was something I tried to get across in the show last last time. We Catholics have to know our 
church history and our history in general. Most Catholics had no idea that for most of the history of Christianity, there was no such thing as sports. Sports were revived at the communist revolutions of the 19th century, started in England and organized sports as we know it, and then spread throughout the whole world. But until then, since the Emperor Theodosius in the 4th century, about 380, abolished them, there were no formal sports. So when people, Catholics, Christians, got together for an occasion, um, there would be some, maybe some form of informal play, but anything that got too organized or too public or too formal was condemned. Very often, say like in the case of the Irish, who would have their patterns or their feast day celebrations, uh, there would be drunkenness involved, and that's, um, that, that would be one reason. But it was this idea of of getting angry and uh, going overboard and fighting simply to win. Maybe drunkenness, maybe gambling would be an element of it. So to understand the, the, the teachings of the saints and the fathers about sports, that's it's almost indispensable, I would say, for a Catholic today. And then the other idea, is, as we're stressing today, is it should be only a game. You should, I should see smiles. This should be fun. You can put your heart and soul into it, but it's a game. And if you get angry, if you get all stressed out, if you are a poor uh, winner or a poor loser, uh, then it's, it's not achieving its purpose, not at all, which is out of relaxation and, and, right. and healthy exercise. Um, lastly... Maybe we should talk a little bit about, I think some of our listeners right away interpreted what was said last time as saying that, oh, you're saying that playing sports is a sin. Aha, got you there. Because isn't that a tendency of the modern day traditional or traditionalist Catholic? Everything um, is, is, is reduced to the, to the aspect of sin. If it's a sin, then you know, I, I might want to buy into that because that's, I speak that language. But if it's not a sin, then it must be okay. And what we're saying is, you know, we're not creating new sins. There's plenty of sins on the books as it is. No one is interested in creating any new sins. However, if it leads to a sin, as is so often the case with sports, on any level, it can lead to sin because it's competition, it's strife, there's a question of pride uh, and wanting to be superior to others that easily enters in. It's the devil. Uh, a playground can be easily the devil's playground. Uh, but just because something is not a sin does not mean that it's necessarily maybe the very best or the best for us, or at the very least what I was saying is that know your history, know, know some of these ideas, and then try to modify, maybe that's the term we want, modify your view of sports uh, so as to keep it within the, uh, the parameters, within the limits of a, of a good Catholic viewpoint on these things. So, Lord, if I could uh, try to encapsulate in a, a sentence what you're saying, it's not the physical activity or the sports themselves that's the problem. It's the approach that one takes to them and whether and how serious one takes them. And if you take it too serious, that's when it starts becoming dangerous. Would that be fair? Yes, if, it, if there's any excess. But physical activity, Nicholas, I think we do need to, to make the distinction that if uh, you take the physical activity to, a, to a, uh, an excess so that there is danger to one's health, say uh, football and soccer players with Head concussions. Uh, mm -hmm. there, 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 there's a lot of that because of this idea of excess and, and victory at any cost. So you have to, if you cast sports as pure, gentle, albeit enthusiastic play, that's okay, I think. But if you if you get into any of these other excesses, then uh, that's that can be indeed sinful, and therefore, you know what? I'm thinking of sports as a little bit like dating for a young person. When you're, if God has called you to the married state, you have to date. But guess what? Dating is an occasion of sin, particularly today because we live in a sex-drenched society. And dancing can be an occasion of sin, but it's a necessary occasion of sin. Perhaps for our world today, you could make a little bit of, a, of an analogy with, with sports. It, it's, it's an occasion of sin, and anybody, adults or children, can fall into that very easily. So we need to remind, maybe we need some sort of a spiritual referee to blow the whistle and to say, hey, we're only doing this because it's fun. Let's have a good time. Let's enjoy ourselves. And let's get rid of all of, of, of these, let's dismiss these temptations. But life is full of the occasions of sin, but we still have to live. 
I'd uh, like to um, uh, expand on something Bishop Dolan said in in terms of um, an example of uh, balance when it comes to uh, sport. Now, uh, for uh, more than 10 years, our uh, boys here at uh, St. Gertrude's have uh, competed in, in, in fencing. Uh, which is a, a very um, interesting sport, which teaches you an awful lot of, of uh, uh, good qualities and poise and self-control and so on. And uh, it's a very disciplined type of, of uh, recreational activity. And it turned out to be one that was actually ideal for us because it's something that you could do if you have a small school. Uh, our Boys, in fact, won a number of years ago division championships against uh, much, much larger schools. They became very good at it. And uh, even our our, uh, team now, we have three boys, uh, have been uh, very successful in uh, fencing, in the fencing competition. Uh, And uh, even against uh, large schools, we have a Division II fencing team. And uh, a week ago or two weeks ago, they actually managed to uh, beat the Division II team from uh, the Jesuit High School, which is the largest Jesuit high school in the country. So it 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 um, very nice in the way of uh, recreation. I go down to watch it uh, occasionally, and I was down there two weeks ago, and um, it it's all done in a uh, very uh, reserved sort of fashion. And it's as a spectator, it's difficult to figure out how the the points are being scored, uh, uh, but. Um, one of the things that I noticed, well, the kids seem to be having a, a great amount of fun. Uh, there is one man who is the coach for one of the fencing teams, and he, uh, at two points, broke in to engage in a major argument with a referee and actually became angry. Uh, that uh, he thought the referee scored uh, uh, didn't uh, 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 score a point uh, right for his team, and he kept on arguing with them. And uh, all I could think of this is right after our show is this is a perfect example of where you turn something that could be fun and uh, enjoyable into an indication for strife, and you're giving the kids all the kids in the room a bad example uh, by saying that this is something we should fight and get angry over. So he did this twice. It's lucky he didn't do it a third time because I would have said something at that point. That, uh, you probably would have, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, because the, uh, it, it ruined the spirit. It ruined the fun of it. Mm-hmm. But for him, sports were really, there were agonia. It was strife, and it was victory at all costs. And he's a modern, and he that, that man, that, that coach, pretty much uh, symbolizes what modern sports, especially on the uh, school level, high school, college, what's that become for us today? Yeah, 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 that's, uh, uh, yeah no, and, I, I think and, that's the... Uh, sorry, go ahead, Father. Well, and and uh, it uh, you know, completely gave the opposite message. The kids themselves were having fun; they were smiling, having a great time doing this. But uh, you know, someone like that, uh, you—that's uh, a question of a loss of balance. Yeah, yeah. The uh, that speaking about about fencing then reminds me that fencing was along with sort of general games the recreation uh that was standard in the french college the uh, the, the the standard french jesuit uh, boarding or high school um during the time of the of the education in the 19th century of the founder of the modern olympics the baron Pierre de Coubertin, and um, that was one of the uh, that was something that he rejected as utterly insufficient. The this very classical and traditional approach of, of fencing, as well as just games in general, he wanted something that had that element of absolute strife, and he believed it was only through agony, the agonia, that the gritted teeth and and, and everything else that characters would be formed and I, I think probably you do indeed get 
characters, but you end up being just a character, and everybody else is sort of wondering what's the matter with you because because of of that kind of a spirit. But that's what he that's what he wanted to introduce that to reintroduce this old idea. He, you know, he openly spoke about the Olympics as being as being a religion, and and to get back to that old uh, old Greek pagan idea, and he worked with really with all of his might and main to be able to reintroduce that idea, and he rejected the old the old traditional recreation, if you will, or sport that was standard in his day. Yeah, the uh, thing that that struck me, and this was again after our our last discussion. Uh, I did a little more research on on Kubertan, the founder of the refounder, as it were, of the Olympics, and uh, found a, a very long article by a German Jesuit, uh, Koch, K-O-C-H, who um, wrote about uh, Kubertan's uh, essentially uh, his his ideas on sports and uh, the correlation between the Olympics as sport and then a religion. And I was uh, quite surprised uh, uh, to, well, I suppose not quite surprised, but the, the word um, uh, agonia came up in uh, Kubertan's writings, the, precisely the sort of thing that the fathers of the church had condemned, this idea of, 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 of the uh, intense struggle. And uh, it was quite something, actually, you know, to see that there on the page, to see that uh, this was a part of his idea and part of his ideals for the Olympics. Hmm. Well, I think we're uh, segueing nicely into the uh, the Olympics themselves. Uh, before we go any further, I would just like to try to situate us um, uh, historically and uh, contextually for listeners uh, as uh, Bishop Dolan, uh, you mentioned earlier in the show that uh, Emperor Theodosius, and for listeners who aren't familiar with him, if I'm correct, he was the first Catholic Roman emperor uh, because yes. he was the successor to Constantine who didn't actually, at least during the time that he was emperor, never converted to the Catholic faith. And one of the first things he did was shut down the Olympic Games, and he had uh, his legions destroy the uh, the big uh, Colosseum, or it wasn't the Colosseum, but the uh, the um, uh, building yeah. that yeah. right had that uh, raised to the ground by his legions. So it's in 1908 when uh, people start getting the idea, and I guess spearheaded by uh, this Coubertin character of trying to bring the re revive the olympics and bring these things back but could we talk just a, a little bit about what were the ancient olympics all about they were they were um they were in a way they were everything they were what modern sports is for many many people in the West, that is to say, it was a combination of sports. It was it was public entertainment. It was um, and it was a religion, and it was politics, and it was a way of life. And it it embedded and it en enshrined and, and uh, insisted on all the pagan ideals. And uh, so there would be there'd obviously no sense of modesty. There were you know there 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 would be the nudity, and then there would be the blood because it was indeed a strife unto the death. Uh, sometimes um, the victors were privileged, if that's the correct term, to take those to take the vanquished, the one who had, uh, a certain man had had conquered in the stadium, to to show him around as a slave in chains to everybody else, that would, or perhaps to actually to kill him, or or the other one would die in in the conflict, and that was all hugely entertaining. And some obviously, and, and, and before Theodosius had abolished them during the persecutions, sometimes it was it was Christians who were the fodder for these kinds of um, sadistic games. So that was. That was the idea. It was a strife unto, unto the death, as St. Paul says, for a perishable crown. Uh, and, th this, and then this, this is what that emperor uh, finally abolished. Although, as I mentioned last time, there were a couple of more attempts to um, revive the Olympics before this 
the faraway right. Catholic Freemason, Coubertin, uh, finally did so successfully. And very publicly proclaiming that, the, that uh, Olympics was, were indeed uh, a religion, that um, the Interla- International Olympics Committee he saw as a, as a college of, or a chapter of priests, and uh, the, the revival of the Olympic movement was meant to uh, inspire sort of a religious kind of feeling and a religious um, sentiment. And all, and then he, to reinforce that, paid very great attention to all of the symbolism, to the music, uh, to the architecture of the stadium, and to the ceremonial of of of, of the Olympics. He um, jumped a little ahead, but I'd like to say right now that he considered that the Berlin Olympics under Hitler. I believe it was 33, were, represented the, the very highest point. It was only the, the Nazis he felt that he could really trust to have the true and the pure Olympic spirit. And he was absolutely in admiration of Hitler. And it was Hitler's idea to have this ceremony, and it's nothing less, this uniting uh, ceremony for a whole nation of the travel around of, and the conveyance of the Olympic torch. Uh, that was a big deal. I, I know in Britain that was a big deal, and I, I presume they had something similar in, in Russia for Sochi recently. And, and it, was, it was Hitler's idea. It was his idea. Hmm. Well, that, that's fascinating. But it, it, it doesn't surprise me, because if one takes a step back and tries to look at it objectively, the, the Nazis, with their neo-paganism and uh, kind of the things that they were occultism aspects, to, to their mm-hmm. uh, thought process fits in perfectly. And, and the uh, adoration of the human body, they were big into the cult of the human body. And, I mean, they focused yes, they on the, the supremacy of one race, but, the, uh, well, in quotations. Um, but that seems to be exactly the, the, all the same sorts of things and the grand spectacles as well that are uh, presented in the modern-day Olympics. Now, um one thing that, that I read in preparation for the show, I'm wondering if uh, either you, Lord, or Father Chikata were able to are able to shed some light on this. Um, at the time of the uh, London Olympics in 2012, uh, there was um, much talk about the history of the revival of the Olympics. Because of course, the 1908 Olympics were in London as well, and there was a an article I found from Zenit, and I know it, it made the rounds, and I remember uh, people sent this to me after uh, the Restoration Radio uh, show on the Olympics, where I was very hard on the Olympics. Uh, people sent this to me saying, like, well, you're essentially saying, Wands Butter, you're out of line, because St. Pius X was all in favor of, uh, of the Olympics. I mean, this, this is a claim that apparently is made by a uh, book written by a lady named Antonella Stellatano entitled mm-hmm. Pius X, The Olympics and Sports. And um, uh, apparently, I haven't read the book, I've just read the, um, the uh, article from the um, Vatican News Service, I think it is, or came from Zenit, saying, claiming that he fully supported uh, Coubertin mm-hmm. and uh, what was fully supportive of the Olympics and thought that this was uh, uh, a, a great thing. Well, the, um, uh, the, this Jesuit, uh, Alice Koch, uh, wrote uh, this very lengthy article. It's, it's um, uh, at least a 50-page article, uh, Pierre de Coubertin and his relation to the Catholic Church, and uh, to a large extent really shoots that down. Uh, he said that um, uh, Coubertin, of course, wanted the support of the church uh, for his uh, his particular undertaking, and he uh, claimed that he had it. But um, uh, according to Koch, he, he uh, the, that this was a, a myth that he uh, uh, that he promoted that Mary Duval, uh because of his his background, certainly in in the English public schools, I think he went to rugby or something. Like that. Uh, Eaton. Uh, Eaton. Eaton. So he, he was, Mary Duvall was interested uh, in this, very much in this uh, idea of sport, but that um, uh, uh, 
Pius uh, the uh, 10th himself certainly did not give an endorsement to Coubertin and uh, the Olympics, and certainly not to any of the ideas of the Olympics. So this was, was uh, uh, essentially just, uh, 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 just another scam. They, they had a, uh, they had, a, they had a, uh, he, he was accorded, the, the Baron de Coubertin was accorded an audience with the Holy Father. And as, as you mentioned, Father, it was, he, he, he was able to swing this through his connections with Mary Duval. Interesting that, 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 that he uh, went to school at Eton and was then influenced to a certain degree by this, this revival of, uh, in effect, pagan athletics at the public school. I think the point of connection and the point of, of weakness was that Coubertin doubtless was raised a Catholic, and he, thus he, and he presented himself still as a Catholic, even though he was um, a fallen-away Catholic, uh, full of modernist and rationalist ideas, a naturalist, truly a naturalist. So, and, the, and the, maybe the point of connection was this, that in the English public school system, athletics, uh, agonia athletics, were held up, as we've said, as character building and as in, introducing, uh, reinforcing the ideals of morality as especially concerning the Sixth and the Ninth Commandments. Um, this would have appealed to both both uh, the Holy Father and, and to his pro-Secretary of State, naturally. And, and, of course, he would have put a good glow on things as he, as he went to see them. And so... Uh, Mary Duval, you know, he remember he had a, he had a boys' school himself, and in Rome, and was interested therefore in, in the work with with youth and sports would seem to play a, a, a role in that. The Holy Father, Saint Pius X. Um, when he was Patriarch of Venice, he would go swimming, and they say that he had some sort of um, athletic, not athletic, but gymnastic uh, display that some, some group presented for him in the Vatican Gardens. So he, he saw its, its, its recreative value, you might say. I don't think it went any further than that, and I don't think that either of these very holy men really knew what Coubertin was up to. In any case, his plan to have the Olympics in Rome was a failure. It, it didn't happen. and went and said to, to London, I believe. Um, and uh, th- that was the end of any so-called church involvement I- in that. Uh, there is that quote from, um, a rather beautiful quote from Pius XII, uh, who had a lot to say about, about many, many modern things and movements in, in, in favor of sport, but obviously sport is, as we're talking about it today in a Christian context as, as recreation and as exercise and not as a sort of a quasi-religion that would encourage the vices. Sure. Uh, one, one of the uh, other points to be made with regard to Pius X and Mary Doval is, in fact, uh, uh, Koch's article uh, says that um, uh, his, his uh, a friend of Coubertin's said that he he was a clever tactician, and had been blessed with the quote smartness of an advocate unquote, and had skillfully quote camouflaged unquote his projects. So uh, the um, uh, you get very much the impression of um, um, someone who was uh, who knew what we he, he was up to, and who wanted, as as this article uh, said, to uh, pocket the blessing of uh, the church for his uh, project, so he could uh, move it forward. And, and it would seem to me that it would be easier for him to camouflage what he was up to when presenting things to the Pope at that time, which well predates the, the modern uh, approach to sport. Uh, yes, and, and he, uh, uh, it is also said at this uh, time that uh, Coubertin uh, had, uh, quote, already given up the faith of his childhood and youth. Hmm. So oh, yeah. um, he, he, he was he was quite the rationalist. Absolutely. Yeah, he was. Uh, so he Natural. definitely was up to something. Mm-hmm. He wanted to use the church if, if he if he possibly could. And how many of the words are lined up wanting to use the church for this or for that during the twentieth uh, century? Well, um, about Cooper, too, maybe. Oh. 
could could we say too about him yeah. a little, just a little bit about his his background? You said that he was he was raised a Catholic. Um, interesting family background is he had a grandfather who was a Freemason, and there is heavy speculation that he himself was uh, initiated into the lodge at some point, maybe some of the lower degrees. That's not really I don't see any firm proof for that though. Um, he had an uncle who was um, a priest who was a, a follower of Lamine and who left when Lamine uh, left the left the priesthood and fell under censure. He he too his uncle had left and then died in the disgrace of the church. So there were sort of two movements: the Catholic movement uh, and his uh, influence in his background. His mother was very very pious, and uh, the other movement was that of um, uh, the, the sort of revolt against the Catholic Church, and then the third. The, the the Freemasonry and the, and the naturalism and all of the, the symbolism of that. So he goes to this French uh, college under, under the Jesuits, and he's inspired by the uh, for the ideals of the of Greek pagan antiquity, the beauty the beauty of of the whole Greek civilization, by his classics professor, a Jesuit. Obviously, a very gifted educator, uh, and probably someone who had no idea that his disciple would take it to to these lengths, and that has a great influence on him. And the next, we hear him uh, rejecting uh, the, this balanced sports approach of his uh, of his youth in the, in the Jesuit high school, going over to England and getting to know some of the leaders of this English um, uh, athletic revival, uh, Protestant, of course, and already sort of. I'm obviously because Protestant Church of England, 19th century, already naturalist to a large degree, and being very, very impressed with this idea of strife and strife until the very end as being um, character forming. And um, as a result uh, of that, he, he, he himself formulates his ideas of this religion. Uh, a true one-world religion for everybody with a heavy dose of uh, naturalistic or Freemasonic-type uh, symbolism and, uh, and strife, uh, strife for the formation of, of characters. Hmm. Well, we're uh, just past the halfway point, and for those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Nicholas Wansbutter, and I'm joined by His Lordship, Bishop Daniel Dolan, and uh, Father Anthony Chicata. And uh, today we're following up on last month's uh, show that dealt with sports, and we've been uh, talking about some more uh, distinctions that can be made, uh, perhaps to clarify uh, some of what was said in the last show. And we're now discussing, uh, in particular, the sporting phenomenon of the Olympics. We want to remind you that Clerical Conversations on the Crisis is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Now, uh, before that little break there, Lord, you're talking about the possible, uh, at least familial, Masonic connections for Baron Coubertin. Um, I know a lot of people love their conspiracy theories. Uh, Indeed. To me, it's it's almost kind of neither here nor there whether uh, Baron Coubertin himself was a Mason or not. I think the principles uh, of the Olympics present themselves as being Masonic, regardless of what his particular uh, connections were. And in preparation for the show, I um, I did some looking around on the Interna- International Olympic Committee website, and they have a, a little... Uh, well, actually, not so little, uh, a 134-page uh, uh, booklet available online there for teaching uh, children Olympic values. Do you have um, that in sort front of, a, of you, Your Excellency? It's in front of me. It's sort of a catechism, almost. Right. Well, it is yeah. their catechism. And I, I'm just looking at page uh, 12 of that document where they lay out the, the fundamental principles yeah. of uh, of the Olympics. and. Uh, just starting with the first one, I mean, I, there's just so much in the first principle, if I read that out, I think there, there's a lot to comment on there. Uh, fundamental principle number one is that Olympism is a philosophy of life, exalting and combining in a balanced whole the qualities of body, will, and mind, blending sport with culture and education, Olympism seeks to create a way of life based on the joy of effort, the educational value of good example, 
and respect for universal fundamental ethical principles. It sounds like a catechism. Yeah, it's it's it, it, it's it's certainly it's certainly a complete a complete philosophy to cover every aspect of their life, someone's life. Not too much room left for religion, looks to me. Hmm. No, and the the uh, uh, the book itself, uh, the, the 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 manual, is absolutely outrageous if you look at it from a religious point of view, because it has it's it's creed, code, and cult. It has the three um, characteristics of the religion. They they have their fundamental uh, principles uh, there. They have uh, that are expressed, which we see there. They have uh, their a code of, of of behavior or discipline, what you're supposed to do to be a good Olympian. And uh, they have the cultus as well, with all of these ceremonies and all of these things are uh, explained in the little Olympic catechism. It's it's quite quite um, uh, quite open, and to uh, someone who has the Catholic faith, should be quite quite shocking. Mm-hmm. And it so, seems and like they're uh, clearly um, promoting uh, one worldism, and and these. Uh, I, mean, I just look at principle number two. It says the goal of Olympism is to place sport at the service of the harmonious development of men with a view to promoting a peaceful society concerned with the preservation of human dignity. So it, <laughs> their harmonious you know development of man clearly has nothing to do with the kingship of Christ. Absolutely not. No. Absolutely not. No, no. It's just a, it's a, it's, that's the whole idea of Freemasonry. It's a quasi-religion or a true religion that replaces a revealed religion. And instead of God it, and our, our Lord, the God-man and our king, it puts man at the center as the God and as the king. And uh, in human and natural events and aspirations and goals, this is what's going to bring us peace. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it seems that it's, uh, I think of very French revolutionary, because uh, I look at number five, uh, of their fundamental principles, and it puts me in mind of how uh, the Russian Olympics, because of Russian laws regarding uh, the propaganda about sodomy, uh, how they've tr- transformed this particular Olympics into propaganda to promote um, sodomy, <laughs> even to the point that the German team changed their uniforms to a rainbow uniform in solidarity with sodomite. <laughs> I didn't know that. And, uh, oh, so uh, oh, principle number five it says, any form of discrimination with regard to a country or a person on grounds of race, religion, politics, gender, or otherwise is incompatible with belonging to the Catholic movement. But, but the way the Russians are treated, clearly it's uh, more liberty for all except for the enemies of liberty. <laughs> oh, that, that's certainly true. And... Can I can I just insert here? It's not exactly sports like, but but I, I wish our, our listeners talk about thinking and reflecting a little bit. Would reflect about all this propaganda that's going on right now against Russia, the Russian Empire, which at least seemingly stands for some moral standards and exalts religion in some sense, as opposed to the American Empire under Obama and all the rest. And you know what they stand for, and you know what they're promoting. Um, So while it's true that Putin was once a communist, and I don't know if he still is or not or what's really behind all of that, but in any case, if you're going to compare the two based on some sense of morality or maybe the natural law or respect for religion, uh, the, the, the Russian Empire doesn't really come across is all that bad, especially when you get into this all of this transgender business and and, and all the rest in the rainbow uniforms. Mm-hmm. Although, really, I mean, it's interesting because Russia isn't even that strong against these things. I mean, certainly more than here, but the law that everyone mm-hmm. was up in arms about was just a law that said you cannot um, submit children to sodomite propaganda. That's yeah, all it said, and that right. was the outrage. And uh, I don't know about in the United States, but up in Canada, it's been big news. Like ever, all the legislatures have been were flying the rainbow flag instead of the Canadian flag during the course oh of the goodness. Olympics. Uh, again, uh-huh. in solidarity, uh, <laughs> you know, and in protest for this uh, evil law that the Russians had. 
Gee, it, it makes you think that it's all sort of manipulated on both sides, doesn't it, uh, Nicholas? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. just kind of gives you that impression. <laughs> maybe, and this is sort of spo- supposed to, oh, say, distract us a little bit and get us to back one side against the other team. Oh, let's mm-hmm. use team analogy here. <laughs> right. And meanwhile, oh, the bad guys are accomplishing what bad guys are supposed to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I somewhat wondered why they gave Russia the Olympics, but maybe it was on purpose so that they could use turn the Olympics into an opportunity to promote these things. This is how they promote their their agenda, and it is very very important. And we're talking about sports in general. That's that uh, this concept for the for the public of panamit chercenses, bread and circuses, entertainment, distraction. God forbid you should actually read, do some real research, or pray about any of these issues. Go along with everybody else, uh, glance at the headlines, and follow the, the public opinion, which in ancient Greece it was all about the Olympics, and in the modern world today it's all about transgender and, and the, the rainbow and, and this and that liberation. And meanwhile, something else is going on, and it's, uh, and it's a true movement of destruction. The... Um, uh, Manual, uh, the Olympic manual has uh, a section in it about uh, celebrating the, uh, our values through symbol and ceremony. Mm-hmm. And here's is uh, that's on page 25, Your Excellency. Here's where the cult idea, uh, you know, really uh, uh, comes along. It's it's where you really see this this uh, idea of of um, uh, turning it into uh, religion and uh, ceremony that they use the uh, use these ceremonies as a way to get their values across and they start out uh, by talking uh, about this on I think page 26 the founder of the Olympics Pierre de Coubertin understood the importance of emotion and imagination he integrated sports with the culture in the organization of the Olympic Games. He created symbols and encouraged ceremonies, music, and uh, pageantry. Uh, these artistic and cultural experiences make the Olympics different from other sporting events and provide a basis for values, education, activities, and a variety of curriculum uh, areas. So the, not only... Uh, do we see this in the Olympics? But this this manual that this catechism they put out is intended to be used in schools, so the, uh, children are uh, the children understand the symbolism of the um, Olympic religious ceremonies. It's a perfect sort of a one new one world church, isn't it? They even have the required little bit of Latin thrown in, provided by this poor Dominican who ended up being a pal and ally of de Coubertin, uh, the Father Didon, Cicius, uh, Altius, Fortius, faster, higher, and stronger. So what more can you ask for? You've got a little Latin, you've got some, you've got some real popular ceremonial, you've got color and entertainment, and everybody is then really happy. And it seems they even have uh, sacred relics of a sort. Um, really? Lord, you, you mentioned the Olympic flame, and I'm just noticing oh, on yeah. the, the page that uh, uh, Father was citing, uh, it talks about the Olympic flame, and it, it confirms, as you said, at the 1936 Berlin Games is when the Olympic torch uh, tradition was begun. And it mentions the whole ceremonies of how it's lit. It's, it has to be lit by the sun at the ancient Olympia in Greece, and then <laughs> yeah. it's passed from yeah. runner to runner yeah. like the burn out all, until you get to the, the wherever, it, and, and then it has to burn throughout the entire game. You know, if funny, you, they don't mention the Fuhrer in there at all. I was going to say, you could, you could picture the Fuhrer in his bunker, you know, salivating all the details <laughs> yeah. of this wondrous <laughs> Greek ceremonial. You know, because he made a true effort to, you know, reestablish a pagan religion for the, yeah. for the Aryan race. And this, would, this is part and parcel of that. But nobody talks mm-hmm. about the Fuhrer anymore. No, strange, isn't it? Whatever you do, don't mention the war. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then they have an Olympic anthem as well, which I don't particularly recall how that goes. But it's it's a it's got all the uh, all the elements of this, and these things are. uh, are, are, are trumpeted. Then I noticed uh, the next page, they're, they're, uh, we talked about the, the cultus that they have. Then the code, they have the athlete's oath. I didn't know that you took 
an oath as an oh. Catholic. Sort uh, of like a sacra- well, the sacramentum, right? The uh, yeah. The, the, in the name yeah. of all competitors, I promise oh. that um, we will take part in these Olympic Games, respecting and abiding by the rules which govern them, and the true spirit of sportsmanship, committing ourselves to a sport without doping and without drugs, <laughs> For the uh, glory of the for the glory of sport and the honor of our teams, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's 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 um, how much more religious can you get? You know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, although it's it's interesting that part of that oath is uh, against doping, uh, because I when I was in university, I got a chance to know a man who actually competed in one of the Olympics. Uh, the Sydney Olympics, and he said everyone in the Olympics uh, that's ranked above 50 is on drugs. It's just mm. they don't get caught. And he didn't do drugs. Mm. You know, he he scored like you know the, the the bottom. And he was a giant of a man. I mean, you know, to, I don't even know what these other Olympi- Olympians would look like in in real life if he was small and weak compared to the uh, the ones who are winning. But 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 again, that I guess, suppose that goes to the whole agonia and uh, taking this to such extremes that you're even going to manipulate and ultimately destroy your body by putting um, putting drugs into it. And I, I mean, they they go to even greater lengths. Uh, I, I don't know if uh, either of you heard about this, but there's a a scandal at one of the previous Olympics that female athletes will apparently purposely get pregnant and then get an abortion because apparently this gives them some sort of hormone boost that can uh, improve their performance. But uh, none of it, none of the stuff would really surprise me because the, the, it is the, the, um, the agony and the struggle. Uh, if you take another example from something non-Olympic, that the the, the um, uh, that the bicycle racer uh, who was uh, taking dope. But of course, you ask the question: If winning is the only thing, why shouldn't you be able to take dope? You know, I mean, it, it doesn't uh, uh, that uh, what renders not taking dope. Uh, uh, virtuous because, uh, you, you know, perhaps you could do commercials and wear the insignia of the companies that make the dope and, you know, make, your, make yourself more money. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, it doesn't, be, because uh, the whole thing is, is, is so detached from any moral values in the first place. Well, why not that? Mm-hmm. So it seems to me, uh, this is implicit in all we've been discussing, but it seems to me that the Olympics are really something that Catholics ought to avoid any involvement in, be it watching or certainly, I don't think there's any way you could maintain a Catholic lifestyle, uh, putting in the type of hours and dedication required to get to the level needed to uh, compete in these sports. Uh, it's all for a false religion. Indeed, it is for a, for a religion replacement, such as a masonry and the organized forces of naturalism specialize in offering uh, the chumps public a, a religion replacement. So you're right. I, I, how could it, whether or not it's a sin? Someone's going to want to know is this a sin? But <laughs> we won't get into that necessarily. But it, once again, it's certainly a very strong occasion of sin and can lead to that. And it's a pitiful weakening of our. Catholic consciousness and uh, and sort of a disgraceful telling of um, our Catholic lives and, uh, and our energy and all of the rest. Mm-hmm. And founded by someone who rejected the teachings of the Church, essentially, and wanted to uh, revive paganism. So it, it has, uh, uh, you know, nothing really to be said in favor of it. He said mm-hmm. that he would establish a religion that the Olympics were meant to be, a religion that's exactly what they have become. But before we before we conclude, because I wanted to, I don't want to just limit this to something to to the Olympics, which is maybe every couple of years. Let's let's at least say a word about um, organized uh, uh, sport and certainly south of your border in the United States. Football, perhaps best of all for us, uh, is a, a form of our Olympics, which goes on all of the time and rarely even takes a 
a church-sanctioned holiday or, or rest period. It, and it's, it's a religion. Football, uh, organized sports in general in the West, and the football maybe in particular, um, it, it takes, you know, the games are played on the Lord's Day very, very often. Uh, the, the themes that they present are, are deeply spiritual. Again, this idea of sacrifice and toil leading to a glorious conquest and victory. It has its <clears throat> high holy day, which of course is Super Bowl Sunday, and um, it has um, the elements of celebration as over Easter or Christmas. That is to say a very large feast, a sort of a ritual feast that is consumed uh, in front of the um, in front of the television set. Uh, the national anthem has to be played. There are jet flyovers. There's that ceremonial, the pagan entertainment at uh, halftime. The, the saints that are held up in this religion are the successful players. And then there are the fallen, those who were not successful in the last game or in the last season. It even has its, it has its sacrifices. <clears throat> I think of those who are willing to sit outside in zero or sub-zero weather, perhaps on concrete seats, if you can imagine it, for hours uh, to, to watch a game. They, they willingly would they make those immense sacrifices and more than that, like uh, the pagans of old, they offer up their children to the Moloch of organized sport. That is to say that uh, the, uh, they put their children into ga- organized games like soccer or football, uh, where there is a, is a very, very strong risk of concussion, head concussion, and possibly permanent uh, damage or in a few times each year. Certainly, it, it, it actually does lead to death. Those are some of the sacrifices that are willingly made for this um, religion replacement. And mm-hmm. for the kids, it's all because they, they get to be demigods for a while. They, they enjoy their, their moment of popularity in high school or college before, it all, before their lives uh, sort of fall apart by, by their participation in these things. Uh, sports in Pervader is not just Olympics. It's sports themselves. It's, organized, it's an organized religion that pervade our, pervades our, our lives. It, once you remove yourself from this casual play, fun, recreation approach to anything that's too organized, that's too competitive, uh, you, you get into excess. And you, you soon see the very, I think, I think the very sad results of, of the excess. Mm-hmm. Well, I know in, in Canada, hockey would be the, ah, yeah. the version uh, of our national religion as opposed to football down in the United States. And I mean, to hockey, it's maybe even um, more obvious because uh, you frequently see fist fights in, in hockey, and it's considered like the real tough players, the real good players are the ones that are going off the ice bloodied and then getting back on the ice shortly after that. And the, um, the, the uh, National Hockey League playoffs, and I know there's a lot of mostly American teams, but in Canada is where the religion really takes hold. I mean, there's a whole, uh, whole code to, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of a weakling if you wear a visor on your helmet, and you're a real man if you take a puck off your face and have, you know, bones shattered in your face, and most of these guys have missing yeah. teeth, and um, yeah. like you see pictures of them, they look like they've literally been through wars by the end of it, and then the Stanley Cup yeah. is treated like a, a holy object of, of reverence. Like you see yes. when um, they'll take the cup through the country to visit all the towns of the players where the players come from. And people will come to touch the Stanley Cup as it comes through their town. Oh, now, as, as that politician said once, now that's just sad. <laughs> if, 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 it weren't, if it weren't so ludicrous, it would be simply funny. But it's just, it really is sad. But this is, uh, well, you know, what one thinks of the words of Aaron uh, to the children of Israel when they made the, uh, the, the, the molten calf of gold. The, Behold your gods, O Israel. And that, that's always the case. These are the false gods that mm-hmm. the enemy of our race, the devil, comes up with, whereby he lures men into his service. And these are the replacements for religion. It's not the mm-hmm. worship of God anymore, the honor to Our Lady and the saints, uh, the service of Christ the King. These are, these are your gods. A Catholic... Uh, and especially a Catholic parent, but any Catholic has to take a firm, uh, reasoned stand against this excess, which is a false religion. Uh, 
And uh, I guess I'm going to have to use the S word here. <laughs> I do think it's sinful. It's sinful in many, many respects. Sinful uh, because of what it leads to and sinful in and of itself, what it distracts from. Um, and it's sinful in the scandal that it gives. So uh, what, what we're proposing is, uh, is uh, truly a, a little bit of a backpedal. And, okay, we have to stop all this stuff and walk away from it, rethink these things, and get back to a true and a Christian perspective on, on sports as game, as recreation. And um, I suppose another aspect to sport, we've, we've talked about it as fun recreation, but it, it seems to me, um, I, I know in uh, Iota Unum by Romano Amerio, he has a, whole, a chapter about how the Nova Sordo sect has changed the, the, the approach to sport. And uh, he talks also about the traditional Catholic teaching that sport falling under the heading of the care of the body and mm-hmm. um, uh, exercise fitness and as part of uh, medical considerations about hygiene, so a way of maintaining your health. So uh, from that perspective, it seems to me that there is or there can be a valid place for sport and exercise, especially in a day and age where many more of us than in any time period before don't uh, do physical labor for our day-to-day job. But for myself, I, I sit at a desk or stand at a podium all day every day. So for me, getting out and playing a little bit of uh, casual hockey with some friends, or uh, the, you know, that's uh, very helpful to me to stay uh, healthy. As long as you don't lose any teeth, Nicholas, we'll, we'll draw the line there. <laughs> well, or help I, I will wear a visor now. <laughs> <laughs> or help anyone or else lose any teeth. Um, right. No, no, no. See, that that's, uh, gets back to this point about the question of balance. Balance. And, uh, balance and, and uh, prudence and uh, doing something which is, uh, you know, really for uh, a good motive. You can have certainly an element of that in uh, a team sport that uh, is fun and that stays at that level, but uh, it's when the, the uh, as it were, the attitude, uh, the attitude changes. I mean, it, there, there's a, uh, and it's the team sports, I think, that you have to be uh, more careful with uh, uh, because of the um, uh, idea of the, the, the influence you're on a side, uh, one side against another with a crowd. I mean, you're not going to get a uh, great deal of, uh, let's say, anger if you're playing golf or if you're playing tennis. Although, you know, there were certainly many badly behaved professional tennis players. but and Golf uh, players, too. Uh, well, uh, maybe not get, on the course, but. Uh, yeah, uh, you, can get, uh, you can get mad, I suppose, at anything, but uh, generally those games are considered a little bit more of a. Uh, uh, a little more of a uh, gentleman's game, and uh, there's a little bit less uh, conflict. But there is that there's that uh, question of balance, and that, as you say, um, exercise is something important as well. Uh, but but, but it, it it is a good caveat, and it's a warning um, that the atmosphere can change very quickly mm-hmm. due to human weakness and also the world in which we live, which gives us this message uh, overtly and covertly that competition and winning is everything. It's almost just a default setting on our psyche anymore. So it's very easy, especially for children and for uh, adolescents and uh, the immature, to get into that world almost right away. You, you lose the sense of balance or tongue-in-cheek or play or fun. And all of a sudden, it becomes deadly serious, and we have to watch that. So it seems to me uh, the takeaway from all this is that Catholics should be very aware of um, of these things, and when they're approaching these things, be uh, be cautious and aware of the the risks, and work at bringing a proper attitude to it, and promoting a proper attitude among others. Would that be a a good way of trying to incorporate a bit of sports? And I know board games were brought up in in the last episode as well. Mm -hmm. I think that's certainly true. I think that all of our Catholics, though, 
uh, have an obligation to inform themselves about these points, about the Olympics, about uh, the excess of organized sports, about uh, the concept of agonia and uh, its, uh, its dangers and what, what, what sport really should be, and, and to opt out of the system, whether it be going to the Super Bowl party or whether it be, you know, smashing somebody's teeth out at uh, an hockey rink uh, and also with the children and their participation in organized sports, which are going to play on a Sunday, which will expose children to a whole lot of bad example and bad influence. Catholics have an obligation to form a right conscience about these things, as we used to say in our Legion of Decency pledge in this country about, uh, about films. Form a right conscience, inform yourself, and then put your faith into practice. Don't go along with the the pervading atmosphere of the age, which uh, is is really a pagan revival that surrounds kind of religion replacement on on many sides. It's grabbing for your your soul, your time, and it's grabbing for your children. And don't don't let them do that. But if you're conscious and you're careful about the way you go about these things, I think you'll you'll, you'll do just fine. Yes, that's exactly it. And as with um uh, everything else, uh, you know, the unreflected life is, is not worth living. Mm-hmm. And Catholics have to be reflecting constantly on the values of, of, of their culture. They have to reflect on the different things uh, they're doing uh, and uh, educate themselves and examine their consciences. And this will raise your uh, awareness of what your duty and what your attitude should be as a Catholic. And, uh, you know, God willing, it will keep you out of any uh, uh, sort of immoderation, uh, any bad attitudes when it uh, comes to things like this. Mm-hmm. Well, that uh, brings us to the end of our show. So um, thank you, uh uh, your Lordship and Father for joining me on the show and for uh, all your insights. And we at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be of value to you in your Catholic faith, that you please consider making whatever donation is possible to our postulate, no matter how small it may be. And to those of you who have donated, a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. If you have any uh, questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, feel free to leave us a message on our Twitter handle, which is at True Restoration, or uh, by email, you can mail us at conversations at truerestoration.org. And we want to remind you that Clerical Conversations on the Crisis is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. However, permission can usually very easily be obtained by writing to us at mail at truerestoration.org. So uh, thank you uh, once again, my Lord and Father. And, uh, You're very welcome. My pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. And, uh, and thank you to our listeners. Until next time, keep the faith. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.